Hello and welcome to the program, Woke Up. And if you're listening today for the first time or you've been following our program uh, since we started, uh, I want to give you an invitation because what we want to do, the exclusive uh, niche of this uh, program is to amplify voices of those who were seduced by the ideology of critical social justice or wokeism. And if that was you, you were led into a, a place of darkness and confusion and uh, in an existential nihilistic place where you were cynical and hated the world and hated everybody thinking you were doing right. We want to hear from you and perhaps you could be a guest on the show or if a friend of yours that has been transformed and has, has left this ideology, uh, we, we want to amplify average voices of people who were stuck to give hope to those that are stuck in it and also to help people avoid this. And when, when we mention the word woke, uh, there's all kinds of different arguments about it. I'm simply talking about wokeism being an authoritarian ideology where you, you, you are controlled in what you speak, how you say it, how you think, and what your behavior should be. And uh, it's a control-oriented it's uh, all-inclusive and all-encompassing in, in one's life, and there isn't freedom. And we know that uh, we are free people with certain unalienable rights, and we were meant for freedom. Uh, God has made us to be free individuals and not be stuck by ideologies and being compelled to think a certain way, act a certain way, and speak a certain way. So please reach out to us, and uh, uh, email is in the show notes, and my name is Michael. And today we have on our, on our show uh, an incredibly talented writer. Uh, she's written exclusively in all sorts of different national uh, journals. She's also <clears throat> the director of marketing and media bias for All Sides. And All Sides, uh, she can explain more, but it really lays out uh, what the bend is of the article you're reading or what the, the mainstream news is having to say from uh, what perspective. And uh, she's a fascinating uh, uh, writer. Uh, she's written extensively on the ideology, which she herself was seduced into. Uh, she's written extensively na nationally in uh, uh, speaking out against this new phenomenon that's uh, sweeping urban centers in America called polyamory and how uh, the, the woke ideology has uh, polluted the minds of young people. Uh, and we're going to discuss some of that. And so on the show, uh, we have Julie Mastrini, and Julie, welcome to Woke Up. I'm so glad that you can make it today and really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. So I'm turning it over to you and you just dig in and so you start with uh, whatever level you want to and we'll go from there. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. Um, I love the name of your show. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, would you like me to give it an introduction of myself or? Yeah, please. Okay. Yeah. So uh, my name is Julie Mastrini. Um, like Michael said, I'm a writer. Um, I've written for EV Magazine and uh, have appeared in The Federalist and The Epic Times. Um, I also write a lot about media bias at allsides.com. Uh, we're a media bias ratings and balanced news company. So we rate the bias of news outlets and then we present left, center and right balanced news roundups um, on our homepage. We do a lot of other things as well. Um, but I also um, help to consult journalists about how to remove political bias from their writing. So, um, and I'm very interested in current cultural issues, issues that are facing modern America, um, especially when it comes to relationships and spirituality and religion. Uh, so I've written and spoken extensively on that and I'm happy to be on the show today. So why do you take us uh, in, into your earlier years when you were, uh, you grew up in a, 
Catholic home, I understand. And then you went to university. And, and what happened to Julie? <laughs> well, I grew up in a small rural mountain town where everybody was Catholic and it was intact two-parent households for the most part, um, very safe community, um, not an explicitly religious community. I was sent to Sunday school and we went to church occasionally, um, but people didn't really talk about deep ideas around me. Um, it's a, a town in rural Appalachia, so uh, it's got a coal mining history, rust belt, blue collar types of folks. It's not really a place where you're going to meet people who are digging into like the deep questions of life and um, have in-depth conversations about politics and God and culture. And I always was interested in those types of conversations. Um, when I was younger, I uh, would like I was really interested in media and creating media. And I read a lot. And uh, basically, I uh, just once the Internet became a thing. Um, I would spend time on message boards. And that's where I found people who were already in university and had a very feminist bent to their worldview. Um, I would really just be browsing like celebrity news message boards. But the people in the comments were often like women's studies majors or um, just feminists. So the Internet's really when I started to be introduced to deeper and different ideas. And it seems like the only people I could really find who were talking about things on a deeper level um, was online and it was people with a feminist bent. So then I went to university and just found that tenfold. Um, I went to Penn State and it's a very liberal school. I didn't know that at the time. I just, you know, went there and was immersed in the culture. And I, it's like a fish doesn't see the water, right? So I, I didn't know that I was enter I was leaving a red rural county and moving into a blue, uh, more urban center. And um, so I just, you know, started to get involved with, um, you know, just people and professors who were on the left. And I started to really explore uh, politics and political ideas. I also was really upset about student loan debt. I thought it was unfair that I had to go into so much debt to get a college education and to have opportunities for employment beyond my small town. Um, and that really led me towards the left as well, because they were the people who were talking about it. And thought that our system was unfair. So I was really just getting immersed into um, a group of thinkers who were rejecting our traditional models of life, our economic system, our whole national system, and, you know, saying that they were progressive and that they were, had ideas to forge a better path forward. Um, so I'd say that's kind of how it started. It was sort of um, this perfect storm of looking at my small town and not seeing it for what it was and just thinking it was boring and nobody there could really answer questions for me. Like I would ask people like, why do people get married? And they'd go, oh, just what you do. Like they didn't have the deeper, like I have an analytical mind and no one was really satisfying my desire to have answers to the deeper questions. And then when I went to university, people were talking about the deeper questions, but it was from the opposite angle, right? Uh, it was feminist, it was leftist. Um, and that's really where I got sucked in, just not being exposed to uh, perspectives on the right. What was your uh, emphasis of study? I started studying journalism and then I switched to public relations. And one of the reasons is because uh, 
I wanted to be able to have a viewpoint and to have an, um, an opinion. I was becoming opinionated. And if you're a journalist, you have to hide your opinions. If you're a good journalist, you hide your opinions. Uh, you don't advocate for a political side. But I was becoming so politicized that I was like, well, I can't really be a journalist because I want to be able to be an advocate. I want to advocate for a better society. I want to advocate for uh, better ways of living, better economic systems, better political government systems. So I switched to public relations, thinking that I would then go into more advocacy work, which I did after college. You know, it, it's interesting. Uh, just a couple of quick things. My oldest son, he graduated from FIU with a journalism degree about, you know, 14 years ago or so. And uh, I asked him five years out of school, uh, how many kids in your graduating class in the school of journalism, there's like 55 of them, uh, are are active in, and have jobs in journalism. And he said, there's absolutely zero that he's aware of, not one. Wow. And so I can see why this frustration amongst millennials and Gen Z about student loan debt and the way universities have pivoted and, and the lack of real life preparation. And so, and by the way, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, I was on the campus of Penn State at the at the, at the creamery, which was famous. And it was, I had a good time there. So I have a context of uh, where you were going to the university. Cause I've got great friends that live right there and my wife and I visited. And so you graduated university, you're indoctrinated into this feminist ideology, uh, looking for meaning in, in, in your life. And, and then uh, what was your first job and what'd you do and what were you getting into? Well, I had really become a big feminist at Penn while at Penn state. I think part of that was because not only was I being encouraged in that by older women, older professors who really encouraged that type of thinking, um, but I was also swimming in a culture that was broken. Um, I had noticed that like the culture of male female relationships was uh, very casual. Nobody asked people on dates. Uh, it just seemed like people wanted to hook up and not be serious. So I was sort of identifying issues in the culture. Also, the men didn't seem very interested in like, taking care of women or being protective. And I come from a traditional family where the men are very protective. They take care of the wives and daughters. Um, and I just was in this kind of brave new world where I was supposed to be equal to men and take care of myself. Um, and as we'll probably talk about later, I saw that get, get even worse in the culture in San Francisco when I moved there. Um, but basically um, after college, uh, and being really encouraged in my feminist views, I got a job at a political advocacy website, which was left wing. And um, we would and I became their PR person. And so I would be uh, pushing forward left wing political advocacy campaigns. We were a petition website. So we would drum up support for our causes. And then I would help to publicize those causes in the press and talk to reporters. Sometimes I would help organize rallies um and actually get on the ground with activists and like have signs and um protest certain things and that was actually some like corporate activism it was a corporation that was you know funding on the ground what looked like grassroots activism um but actually had been born out of a boardroom um so it was really interesting and working there i could kind of tell myself i was doing good but i started to realized that, uh, it, and this was in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I was working this kind of left-wing advocacy job and then living in a very, very blue area where I finally got to see all of my ideas actually implemented in society. Uh, because when I lived in Pennsylvania, those ideas were, while there were inklings of the feminist mindset in the culture at Penn State, 
Um, when I got to the Bay Area, that's really where everyone there is on the left. The culture has fully absorbed the ideas of the left. Uh, mm. And so I was working this activism job, interacting with the press, and then also living in the culture that of San Francisco, which is very feminist and uh, very left wing. I never encountered anybody that was really on the right uh, or had different ideas about how we should live or how society should be structured. It was not okay to be a Christian there. I never met Christians. Um, uh, people were very spiritual, not religious. And uh, I started to get really immersed in uh, sort of new age spirituality, yoga, tarot, uh, meditation, that sort of thing. I had a, you know, somewhat of a spiritual practice, but I, my thinking was very much in line with how people in San Francisco conceive of spirituality, which is that like, we are God, we manifest our reality. Um, they don't have the distinction between creator and created. It's like all one. And you'll hear them say, oh, we're all one. It's all, we're all God experiencing the, the universe. Or people would actually kind of pray, pray isn't really the right word, but they would appeal to the universe for their prayers. Um, so it was always about, um, I'm going to manifest this in the universe. The universe is going to provide something for me. So uh, there was not that um, ultimate creator that created the universe. To them, the universe was God. So I was kind of exploring this spirituality while also living in a city that uh, the people who were thinking like this were very much about eroding boundaries and uh, pushing boundaries and uh, getting rid of traditional frameworks of morality and human behavior. So a lot of people in the Bay Area were into open relationships. Uh, and that was uh, probably one of the biggest uh, factors uh, going through that that started to uh, unravel my worldview, that and many other things. But I could talk more about that if you'd like. Yeah, let's talk about that. You're talking about polyamory, which is a the phenom, which is sweeping urban centers all through America right now amongst uh, young people. Uh, is that what you're referring to? Yeah, absolutely. So I had mentioned earlier that like when I was younger, I had questions about like, why do people get married? Like, why, why do people do that? Um, which maybe sounds like a silly inquiry, uh, but it was one that I had. Um, I, I didn't understand why society was structured the way that it was. Um, so when I went to the Bay Area, people there were uh, saying, we don't have to live that way. Actually, that's restrictive. That restricts our freedom. Um, they were basically uh, the message that I got was that polyamory was a way to sort of reimagine romantic and sexual relationships in a way that would increase uh, the longevity of a relationship by insulating it from risk because divorce is so prevalent that if you kind of diversify your portfolio, so to speak, this was actually how a guy I was dating at the time explained it to me. Yeah, it was almost like an investment strategy where if you diversify yeah. your relationships and have multiple sexual and romantic relationships, then you can insulate yourself from your relationship falling apart. And this is the key to a long, happy relationship. There were also some anarchist ideas tied up in there um, uh, and feminist ideas. So ideas that like women uh, should be free from uh, the constraints of the patriarchy, um, ideas that 
uh, we don't own one another and that monogamy means owning one another and that if you truly love your partner, you'll let them be free and um, let them do what they want and that that's true love. So these were, there were a lot of different things going on. Um, also that if you're jealous, it's just something that's wrong with you and that you need to get over and that truly loving your partner means letting them be free and not really making any demands of them that would restrict their freedom. So really there was this idea of like freedom is the highest value. And that kind of tracked with the feminist worldview because feminists are always saying that women are oppressed and constrained in unfair ways by patriarchy. So I was at the time a libertarian feminist. So I was slightly more to the right on economic issues. Like I believed in the free market and I thought that socialism was really bad economically. But my uh, social ideas were on the left and I was a feminist. And I thought that what we needed to be striving for to achieve human happiness, to maximize human happiness was to maximize freedom. So open relationships were really sold to me that way. And then another thing that was going on was that I was encountering so many, you know, attractive, interesting men in the Bay Area that I might like to date. And they were saying they were polyamorous. So I thought if I want to get a partner or date someone I find compelling, I have to accept being in an open relationship. Um, I also thought, and, and something else that kind of goes on here is uh, with hookup culture, if there's uh, so many women providing access to sex to men. So if you're a woman that says, I don't want to do that, you think, well, I'll just be alone then because men can go get this anywhere. So I kind of, so in this way, uh, hookup culture and feminism is disempowering to women mm -hmm. because we feel like we don't have a choice and we have to engage in hookup culture or we have to engage in polyamory uh, because everybody else is doing it. And that if we hold our boundaries and say, no, I want monogamy and I don't want to have sex before marriage or something like that, uh, that men just won't be interested. I found out later that's not true. <laughs> you can absolutely hold boundaries and holding boundaries will actually bring you a higher quality partner um, and a, a partner that will uh, have the ideas that are needed for family formation. Uh, but really, um, whenever I was in this mindset of thinking that open relationships and polyamory were the right thing, um, I had a, I really struggled with it. Like I was dating someone who kept insisting that we be in an open relationship. And uh, I always felt terrible, like just awful, like crying. I'd have just like hours of crying about this. And my body was like always responding to it with tears and anxiety. And then I was being told by people around me that that was a fault with me and that I just needed to change. And this was an opportunity for my personal growth. And uh, really what I came to realize after being in this relationship for many so, years. Jealousy and, jealousy and insecurity as you give yourself to somebody uh, those are just things you have to overcome because you're not uh, awakened enough. And, and yes. monogamy is nothing more than uh, the patriarchal system for men to maintain their power. I mean, it seems pretty much like the argument, right? That's exactly the argument. Yes. And um, they see monogamy as like a cage and open relationships as being true freedom. But what I found was that being in an open relationship was the cage because I could never feel secure and comfortable enough in the relationship for the relationship to like move towards family formation. And I could never fully like trust my partner um, 
it, the open relationship is what felt like a prison because my partner, I don't really like the word partner, but my boyfriend, um, he was, uh, a slave to his hedonistic desires. Um, uh, that's really what happens in an open relationship is you, instead of, um, you know, submitting yourself to a higher principle of commitment and fidelity, you are constantly pursuing hedonistic pursuits. So it becomes all about sex and pleasure and pursuing that and being and having that be available to you instead of, uh, you know, re repressing uh, the hedonistic impulse, the base animalistic desires to a higher principle and serve a higher principle, which is um, commitment, devotion to one person. And I and something that actually really helped me to get out of this, aside from realizing just how unhappy I was and that the open relationships around me were always falling apart. Like I didn't know anybody who had been married for 30 years and was in an open relationship. It just like wasn't. Didn't okay. exist, huh? Wow. Yeah. And so the, even the longevity argument that I had initially been seduced by, I was looking around and going, well, I don't know anybody that's been uh, non-monogamous for many years and still together with one person. Like it just didn't make any sense. Um, but really what helped me was actually realizing that my bodily responses of like um, crying and anxiety and sadness were to take more of a scientific angle. There were anthropological reasons for this. Um, human babies take a really long time to grow up mm. and uh, women release a bonding hormone called oxytocin when they have sex with somebody. So the woman bonds to the male. And then what she really needs is a, partner who is invested in the offspring, who knows that it's his child and is going to stay with the woman and help him raise that child. That's how you have the best outcomes for your offspring. So it was really taking this uh, sort of understanding of like the science behind it. Because again, I wasn't really religious at the time, um, even though I was realizing that there were spiritual implications uh, and spiritual reasons why this was bad for me uh, spiritually. But I also started to look into like the anthropological reasons why this was a bad setup and basically realized that this does not work for family formation uh, because when you let your partner go off and sleep with other women, well, he could get her pregnant um, and then he, it would divert time, resources and attention away from your family and your offspring. So it's a liability to let your partner go off with other women and he might fall in love with another woman and then leave you. And so just none of it made sense, even though my boyfriend at the time had made this like risk management argument, which sounds honestly sort of autistic to me now. Um, uh, <laughs> um, it actually was increasing risk. It was increasing the risk of our relationship without the boundaries of monogamy and commitment. We were throwing a bomb into the middle of our relationship. So I started to realize also that he was not taking a protective attitude towards me. Um, a, a good man should want to protect the woman that he loves. Um, mm -hmm. He should want to insulate her from harm, not cast her out to the wolves where to meet other men who might be dangerous or, um, you know, to be in the throes of a hookup culture. Uh, so I was kind of waking up on multiple levels to why polyamory is so spiritually, materially, emotionally terrible for people. And I just couldn't believe that no one had warned me. Uh, I would even talk to older women about it and be like, well, you know, the guys here, 
in the Bay, they are really into this idea of open relationships. What do you think? And the older women in the Bay Area would be like, oh, well, you know, I know people in open relationships and they say it's the best relationship they've ever had. And I'm like, all right. Like none of the older women were even like, no, don't do it. It's a bad idea. Finally, one of my friends, childhood friends, dear friend who had been become a Christian recently told me, I'm just going to tell you, I think this is bad. This is bad for you. And I was like, huh, I haven't heard that. You know, everyone's telling me it's the, the great new idea, right? So um, getting out of that mindset and realizing that monogamy is the path for healthy family formation and child rearing and for the health of the woman, for her own emotional and spiritual stability, uh, that really started pushing me on the path towards Christianity. My, my uh, realization was that Christians had been right about a lot of the things they had said about um, sex before marriage, uh, two-person families, male and female relationships. And it really started to make me want to explore Christianity more. What, what about uh, the concept that uh, no human being can meet all the needs of another person? Yeah, that's something that I heard a lot in these circles. Um, you can't expect one person to meet all your needs. I think there's two things going on there. Um, one is that Americans are very atomized now. We no longer live in small villages of extended family networks and strong communities and church communities. People are very atomized. They move for work. They move for pleasure. They move all over the country. And it's very rare to grow up in a tight-knit community where you know all your neighbors and your aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents are all nearby. Um, now, that's how I grew up, and it was very nice. Um, but the average American doesn't live like that anymore. So I think that people, young people who are drawn to open relationships might actually be reacting to atomization, social atomization. And they might be trying to forge a community and a network by piling on multiple romantic and sexual relationships to sort of create a feeling of community around them. Um, it's obviously not the right way to do it. Uh, the other thing I would say is that Monogamous people never claimed that one person's meeting all their needs. Uh, for most people, one person meets sexual and romantic needs just fine. And then you have your family, your extended family, your friends, your coworkers. Uh, so I think that argument just breaks down upon further examination. How, how about in, in these in this uh, subculture that you were active and part of that you knew a lot of people and you observed a lot of things, did, were there ever any families with children or were children not even part of it? A great question. That was another huge realization for me was that people were not having children. Uh, San Francisco has a very low birth rate. There are more dogs than children in San Francisco. And I, and I think I started to really contrast San Francisco with its liberal progressive mindset with the small Catholic conservative town I'd grown up in. And I would think about it and it was like, well, my small town had these restraints on people's behavior, right? People were monogamous, but it was fruitful. People had children and people were happy. And San Francisco has gotten rid of all the constraints, do whatever you want, be in an open relationship, don't be monogamous. And everybody was unhappy and there were no children. So I started to realize that actually this path of what the left prescribes as a path forward to happiness and human flourishing is a path towards death. Like literally, like if your ideology isn't producing new life, you are on a death path. 
And that really freaked me out. Um, that was a huge reason why I started to look the other way. Well, uh, you know, I could, I could speak as a male because before, you know, 75 pounds ago and a full head of hair back when I was in college, I was able to flirt with girls and, and, uh, you know, I had my own situations and stuff, but, uh, I remember when access was really easy. I, I just kind of couldn't wait to get away from the girl. I didn't want to connect with her emotionally. I didn't want to go on a picnic. I didn't want to like get to know her. But then when I met my wife, I just like hormonally something happened within me where I just totally fell in love with her and wanted to make her my wife and build my life with her. I couldn't imagine life without her. And, and, uh, there, because there was a, there was a morality to her. There was a, 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 a purity to her, a kindness to her and that, uh, really attracted me and really, you know, compelled me to, to become a better man, you know, to become more disciplined in my life, to work harder, to be the kind of man that could be a good husband to her. And, you know, we, uh, we changed a lot of things and the way we were raised and our worldviews. And, you know, 37 years later, we, we have a, a family and a beautiful relationship and nine grandkids. And so uh, I can just say hormonally uh, from a male perspective, just having a, an encounter like that is not fulfilling either for a man. Ultimately. I mean, you, you feel, okay, great. You have a cigarette afterwards and you feel cool, but uh, it's just not the same as uh, a commitment of love and, 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 and connectedness of, of faithfulness to one another and going through life together. Yeah. There's something very romantic about choosing one person and saying, you know, you're not only do I think you're great, but I also know you're human and have flaws and I'm going to be there for you through it all. I'm going to be right. there through the suffering, through the hardship. We're going to celebrate each other's beautiful parts and we're going to work on becoming better through our shortcomings. That's really romantic. Um, saying, and I think with polyamory, people say it's commitment to many, but it's actually commitment to none. You're not committing to anybody. It's, commitment to self. it's narcissistic. Yes. And something else that goes on in this environment, like even if you're not polyamorous, uh, we do live in a world where even people who are monogamous are engaging in hookup culture. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of what young people call like situationships where it's like, well, maybe we're sleeping together or seeing each other, but we're not committed. And, you know, so even amongst the so-called monogamous people, people aren't making commitments and are engaging in hookup culture. And then and I think what's happening there is a really negative impact on men. So in a culture where uh, birth control didn't really exist, uh, at least not as easily and widely available as it exists today, you couldn't have hookup culture because sex was so risky for women. So women would gatekeep sex and they would say, OK, if you want access, uh, you need to be a good man. You need to be committal. You need to be wise. You need to be uh financially stable, you need to be moral, you need to be virtuous. And because uh, pregnancy is a long-term risky endeavor and you don't want to do that with just anybody. So in order to access sex, men had to be better and be committal. But, and so that would actually create more masculine men, men who were uh, much more admirable, men who understood that they needed to provide and protect women. And in this hookup culture, polyamorous culture, sex is so easily available that men don't have to do much anymore. They don't have to better themselves. I remember in San Francisco, I knew someone who was 
she was trying to get a boyfriend, but she would just sleep with the men first and they would just like walk, play video games all day after like sleeping with her. And she's like, I don't get it, you know? And I'm like, well, he's getting the reward for none of the work. Like, you know, he's not, why would he be compelled to stop playing video games and go build something or work hard when he already gets some, like his reward? It's like, here's your reward for doing nothing. So I think in this culture, uh, men are really becoming emasculated and then women are going, why aren't there any good men? And it's really because of this sexually liberated culture now, the big issue there is that the birth control pill fuels all of this because it's re removed the threat of or risk of pregnancy. And I don't know how you turn back the clock on that. I think you just need people to realize the second order social effects of the birth control pill. And hopefully people stop taking it and we can get some of these constraints back in place. Um, I don't know. But that technology in particular has fueled all of this, um, that technology plus the decline of religious values um, and our really uh, subverted morality as a culture. And easy access to uh, abortion treatments, uh, ending unwanted pregnancies as well, you know, that's doesn't have the consequences as high. So, so San Francisco obviously has got a lot of problems. It used to be the most beautiful city and most prosperous in many ways it still is, you know, uh, it's the home of artificial intelligence and Silicon Valley. And even though Austin and Nashville are, are making a dent in that, nothing's like San Francisco. So I think the economics there, ultimately, they're going to have to wake up because right now San Francisco has one of the, uh, an imploding housing market in terms of real estate prices, devaluation and crime that's, uh, you know, not punished or it's totally acceptable. Uh, fentanyl overdoses, drug overdoses, people in the streets, and, you know, I do think at some point uh, somebody's going to step up and say, this, this, is, this is an absolute mess. Uh, but, you know, I, I do agree with what you're saying. If when there's a feminist worldview and masculinity is taken out of the equation and women, is, and women don't really aspire to be married to a, to a masculine man, it, it demasculates a man and he just loses his competitive edge, his... Uh, his natural desires to impact the world and have a family and be a, be a protector. It's something that's uh, innate within, within us. And so we see this cesspool of, uh, of woke ideology all through San Francisco played out in real time. What were some of the other things you noticed that were going on besides uh, the hookup culture and, and, and the view on, uh, on relationships? Yeah, I think like basically what you alluded to there was that it was unsafe. Uh, the crime was really bad. The streets were unsafe. When I was walking around, I was always like looking over my shoulder. Some neighborhoods were okay, um, but others, there were people who were addicted to drugs and very out of it, not in reality um, and potentially dangerous, wandering the streets. Uh, one time, a man who was super strung out on drugs and had probably been living on the streets threw a cigarette in my face. Um, my coworkers had stories of people throwing oily liquids on them as they're walking down the street. Um, people had, I know someone who got stabbed walking through a homeless encampment, you know, um, really unsafe streets. And I, and I realized that that all also linked back to the feminist ideals of the city and the progressive mm. so-called progressive, I think they're regressive yeah. uh, ideas uh, because we were basically telling men, women can take care of themselves. We, we can make our own money. We don't need you. And there's, and uh, you know, aside from 
pleasure seeking and sex. There's really no collaborative energy between men and women. Uh, women are independent. And uh, that's really permeated the mindset of that whole city. And you can even see it in the city government where uh, there's no idea that the male role is to protect, to protect the weaker, vulnerable, smaller of the species, women, um, from bad men. I really became aware of my own physicality as a small woman who wouldn't be able to physically defend herself in that city. And that's one of the main differences between men and women that is just ingrained in nature is that men are bigger and stronger and thus better able to protect. Um, but feminism had been saying for decades that we're the same. So men didn't uh, in that city, like didn't understand that their role is to get a handle on the bad men and protect the women. So the city wasn't safe for women or children. And uh, I really started to realize that, that when you eradicate the uh, understanding of differences between men and women, and you eradicate the idea that men and women have some duty to one another, that you get a very unsafe society, literally physically unsafe. So that was a big thing I noticed. So what, what happened with you in, uh, in your early years out of university, living in San Francisco, living this uh, a feminist mindset, you go from a, a worldview where you think you're part of the universe, which you are, obviously are, but you are creating and you and yourself like are, are independent and almost like your own God to now you have a, a completely radically different worldview where you recognize that there is a creator and uh, we're all submitted to that. So, so talk, walk us through like your spiritual journey uh, to where you're at today. Yeah. So, and it ties back to the whole polyamory thing because I realized that I couldn't design myself. I couldn't just like snap my fingers and feel okay in an open relationship. I had been designed by God to be of, of the type of the species that is childbearing. And I couldn't just design myself to be okay with my partner sleeping with other people, right? It wasn't my design. I didn't design this. And yes, maybe there are limitations, restrictions, burdens even to being a woman, uh, but it's much better to accept that and then to, uh, you know, choose relationships with good men who are going to take care of you than to keep trying to force yourself into some you know, shape that doesn't fit to get rid of your jealousy, to get rid of your upset at him being off with someone else. Right. Um, and also realizing that, uh, the, the path to the future is through healthy male, female relationships, just as the church had always said, that's what is generative. And, uh, what is degenerative is the way that I was living, the way that people around me were living. As we said, it wasn't producing children. It was degenerating. Right. And I wanted to be part of creating, um, I'm a creative person. Uh, I got into fire dancing in San Francisco and circus arts and all kinds of fun things. And it's really fun to create, to create art, um, to create, um, a beautiful life. And I realized that I needed to co-create with God. Um, I needed to accept the world as he had designed it and stop trying to uh, push forward this feminist worldview where women don't need men or men and women don't need to be committed to each other and just accept his design. And then that would uh, create the presets for a healthier life. A friend actually explained it to me this way. She was like, Steve Jobs didn't doesn't tell you not to spill water on your MacBook because he hates you. He knows how he designed it 
And he's telling you that for your benefit. He says, don't spill water in your MacBook because I know how I designed it and it's going to screw it up. And it's kind of the same with God. Like, whereas I thought that all these so-called guidelines or rules that religion was always imparting um, were for my restriction, they were actually for my benefit. Now, they are restricting. There are things I don't do or uh, don't believe people should do anymore. But uh, that's actually for good. <laughs> so uh, I just started to accept God's design. And then that really started to move. The, it really was the experience with polyamory that helped me to accept God's design. And then I started to look into a lot of other things. I also realized that if there's no eternity, hedonism is the only answer. Um, you can do whatever you want and should just seek pleasure in this realm on this earth. If there's no eternity, you can pretty much do whatever you want. Uh, morality goes out the window if there aren't eternal consequences. Um, if there's no heaven, then I should just maximize my pleasure seeking on this earth. And so I rejected that idea as well. Um, I just knew that being beholden to God, um, believing in an afterlife and accepting God's design uh, was what was going to compel me to higher virtue. Um, I, I do think accepting that creates a better life on this earth, but it also reminds you that this isn't the only thing mm -hmm. um, and that we have to be beholden to, um, we have to know that, uh, you know, God sees us if we want to act wisely. If, if there aren't eternal consequences, you can just do whatever you want. And I think a lot of people in San Francisco, I don't, I don't know. I don't think they believe in an afterlife and, that changes how they live in negative ways. Yeah, and that's nothing new to, uh, to today's society. And I, I'm the, I, I try to be a good reader. I try to read things. It's all I'm not trying to speak like an author, authoritative voice here. But uh, remember this quote from uh, Dostoevsky and the brother brothers Karamazov, where they say, "If there is no God, then everything's permitted." And it's like, then we just spiral into hedonistic. Uh, narcissism and just you know eat today have sex today do what you want today because it's all going to end anyway there's no there's no accountability there's nothing more fruitful there's no eternal life there's nothing uh for a moral backdrop other than what we feel and think within our own finite abilities as human beings exactly and i was also realizing the virtue of sacrifice which is something christianity has always focused on like my boyfriend would not sacrifice the possibility of other women for me and it hurt i was like you don't love me then mm. and so what did christ do for us he sacrificed himself for us because he loved us so yeah. uh that really was a big the connection between sacrifice and love and also just realizing that if you don't sacrifice something you won't ever have anything like it's a paradox like if you don't sacrifice all the other women in the world and pick one, well, you won't have children. You won't have a family. Um, if you don't sacrifice, uh, if, if you try to keep yourself open to every possibility, you don't actually get the chance to build a life. Nothing will actually manifest. You have to sacrifice some options to have everything. It's like if I was in the job market and I was like, well, I could get a job there, 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 but I never picked one. Then I'd never have any money, right? I'm just going to keep my options open. You can't do that forever. <laughs> and no. um, I saw a lot of people in San Francisco living that way, just kind of like, especially with regard to human relationships. Um, and, and so again, I was just realizing that everything Christians had talked about had real basis in reality. So what, what, what happened uh, like spiritually where now you have a personal relationship with God and you're 
uh, you're converted into Christianity. Like, how did that happen? And what was that like? And, you know, where you actually feel a connection with your creator? So what started to happen is I started to make choices um, and a lot of things fell away from my life. Like I realized I had to leave the relationship I was in. I had to leave San Francisco. I had to leave even like friendships, places I'd gone um, where hedonistic things were happening um, or, the, or people weren't operating with a firm and good morality. Um, I had to let a lot of things go, which can be scary, I think. And I've heard this from a lot of people that convert. It's like all of a sudden things start being like stripped away because you know that you just can't go in that direction anymore. So your life starts to transform. Um, but then a new path opens up. So I left San Francisco and um, I was sort of uh, I think my sister described it as being like in the puberty between like new age and Christian, like starting to lean towards Christianity. And uh, I was just trying to find a path forward that would be generative and positive and leaving behind the degeneracy of San Francisco. I wanted to find a community. That was a big one too. Cause I knew that in order to be a good person, I needed to find a community of like-minded people who would compel me forward on that path. So I realized that I needed a church. I needed um, a community of Christians. Well, actually, first, I just realized I needed a church. I, I was very concerned with the issue of social atomization and how that had led to people embracing polyamory and things like that and women being unprotected outside of the purview of their fathers and grandfathers and husbands. Um, so I realized I needed a church, a church community. And I ended up meeting some artist friends who were definitely new age Um but they were working for an artist who sometimes painted uh, Christ. And so there were elements of what I liked about San Francisco, like the um, culture of fashion and creativity and things like that. Uh, fire dancing. Like I said, I'm, I'm a fire dancer. Um, uh, there was, uh, they had embraced those sorts of things. Um, but this painter that they worked for at his, like it was it's basically like an estate um, in upstate New York, uh, you know, they also, he was depicting Christ. So I was like, okay, like there's Christ is here. Um, and there's these other things I like from San Francisco that are cultural elements. So my sister and I ended up moving near this art church that this artist runs and uh, there are young people working there and they have events and things like that. And, um, but I started very quickly. I realized it had the same issues as San Francisco, uh, the polyamory, the drug use, which we've barely even touched on, but it was a huge issue in San Francisco, um, it seemed like there was no wisdom being imparted that would help people to have a structure for their lives that was healthy. And I and I had been getting into Jordan Peterson as well, and he's very articulate and uh, and can really clearly articulate ideas for a healthy life. And um, th at this so-called church, there would be something like a sermon that would happen at some of the events, but it sounded nonsensical to me. Like it wasn't articulate. It wasn't giving uh, proper instruction. The men there I noticed were weak like they were in San Francisco, like not interested in taking care of women, all the same issues. So even though Christ was like depicted in some of the art there, they also were depicting all the other religions. And their idea was that all religions are essentially the same and they share the same mystic core. And we're just going to follow the spiritual path without choosing a dogma. And I realized that I needed a Christian church. So I started to look into 
uh, Christian churches. And I was very naive to the differences amongst Christian churches um, at the time. I went back to the Catholic church because that's how I was raised. And I saw the same issues there that I that had drawn me away from it growing up. Um, it felt like there wasn't a strong community. My friend had brought me to her Anglican church and they had a coffee hour afterwards where everybody got together and she was close with her priest. They had a personal relationship, which was unheard of when I was growing up. I never had a personal relationship with a priest and everyone was real tight knit. And I was like, where do I find that? Like, I want to have an actual community. I don't want to just go to mass and leave, which is what a lot of Catholics do. And so I would, my sister and I would even call Catholic churches and be like, do you do coffee hour? And they were like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, uh, I started uh, going to some evangelical churches uh, uh, and that felt even more off to me um, because they weren't doing communion every week. There wasn't a focus on the sacraments. Often the churches weren't beautiful. And one of the things that kept me in San Francisco for so long was how beautiful it is. It's so spiritually nourishing to be around beauty that I really couldn't accept a lot of Protestant churches just kind of looking like a, a concert hall or like a lecture room that really didn't jive with me. And then I started looking into church history and, um, you know, where does this all come from? Who was Martin Luther? Um, what are the different ideas of salvation that different denominations have? Where do they agree? Where do they disagree? And I started looking into that and some friends were recommending the Orthodox church to my sister and we ended up attending. And I started, and after doing kind of my deep dive into theology and uh, the history of the church, the first Orthodox church uh, we ever went to was uh, in a dying town in Pennsylvania and it seemed unfriendly and weird. And I was like, I'm never becoming Orthodox. Then we gave it another shot, thank God, and went to a different church. And it was just immediately the community embraced us. They were giving us books. They were so excited that we were there. The priest was showing us all the icons and what the meaning was in the iconography. It was a beautiful church. There was a focus on the sacraments. The priest was masculine um, and seemed to actually, you know, believe that his role was to uh, guide and protect his parishioners. So it just had everything I was looking for that I couldn't find in San Francisco, couldn't find at the psychedelic art church, couldn't find in Catholicism and couldn't find in evangelical Protestantism. It was like a healthy community, a healthy worldview, a healthy spirituality. And that's when I really felt like I'd found my home and found what I'd been looking for. With 2000 years of history. <laughs> yes. And the many different cultures. One, one of the things I neglected to do is I, I uh, is your sister, uh, Amy, she was on the show and she did a fantastic job. And I didn't uh, even, even mention that. And, uh, and you guys have had a very parallel journey and, uh, and you have your own podcast called the mystic sisters. And I think it's fascinating. The, the traditional mainline denominations in America, they're, they're declining in population. Evangelicalism is declining. Less and less people are professing to be Christian, more and more agnostics and atheists than ever before are self-reporting. However, we see a big growth uh, in orthodoxy, which is traditionally uh, Eastern European traditional churches in America with the liturgy and the, the ancient faith. But there's a seems to be in, in your demographic, a lot of younger people that uh, have, are looking for something spiritual. They've, they've tried it through social justice or feminism or, or the different ideologies, uh, but you're, but you're finding your home in orthodoxy, which I just find to be fascinating 
the growth that's going on within the Orthodox Church in America, one of the fastest growing denominations in the United States by far. And the other one is uh, is the Amish community. The simplicity of that is is experiencing significant growth as well, while mainline uh, denominations are decreasing. Yeah, I, there were a lot of people that I think COVID was a big deal for them. I was already on this journey uh, before COVID hit, um, and, although I did officially get chrismated and convert in 2021. Uh, but a lot of people, I think during COVID, realized that they wanted something stable, something that has been stable through the generations that can withstand the storms of time, uh, can withstand the whiplash of modernity and modern culture. And then, like you said, a lot of them have tried other things, feminism, atheism, uh, socialism, whatever it may be, and found that lacking. And I do think that for a lot of people, things like feminism, libertarianism, social justice ideology are religions. They have the same mm. features that a religion has. Um, it has the precepts of how to be and not to be and what to believe. And um, in the new age psychedelic community in San Francisco, I would say their sacraments are like taking acid, like, or, you know, and so there's like, there's absolutely like this desire. I think we're built for spirituality. We're built for worship. There's something that's going to be first that mm. you're serving for my um, experience with polyamory, freedom was the highest value. Um, pleasure was the highest value. That's what all of the actions of uh, polyamorous people were serving that God. Um, and so if you have anything but God as the number one thing in your life that you serve, uh, you're going to get diverted. And that was a big realization for me as well is that like, I, I believe in freedom, uh, human freedom, uh, but also that's not like my number one thing anymore. I'm okay with um, subjugating some of my base desires to uh, a higher power, right? Um, I don't believe that just doing whatever I want is going to lead to a happy and fulfilled life anymore. So yeah, everybody has a God. They have something they serve, whether they know it or not. And it's like, is your God God or is it? something else. Well, one of the things that you're, you're most uh, known for, I would say nationally is your work with uh, all sides media. And so I'd like to discuss a little bit about that, where you, where you look at all the publications and you rank them based on liberal leaning or in the middle or right leaning. But then a, a really cool thing that you guys do is uh, you take the articles of the day and you show how the liberal media and the conservative media differ. And uh, you indicate that every all media is biased. And so you're like the, the most prolific writer and you're uh, the, the director of marketing as, as, a, as well as like assigning uh, the levels of the 800 different media outlets you've, you've, you guys have analyzed. Can you talk about your work there? Cause that's fascinating because we know that the information we get is biased and filtered one way or the other. And uh, like, Maybe you can give us some tips and uh, for, for you've been doing this for seven or eight years now. Uh, some of the things that you've observed and observed and, and what our audience should look for in the information that we consume. Yeah, uh, media is a huge part of this whole story that I've barely touched on. But a lot of the ideas that I had that led me so astray were coming through the media. Um, I was being we're all influenced by the media, especially young people, especially young women. We get ideas about how to live and what to believe through the media. 
So whenever I took my left wing advocacy job in San Francisco, I was interacting with reporters and I would prepare myself for their interviews by saying, OK, what if a conservative reporter calls me and they don't like this campaign? How would I answer their questions? What would they ask? And I would prepare. And that kind of that exercise kind of made me go, well, can't really don't have a good answer for that. Maybe conservatives have some good points. Um, but also they never called. And the reporters who did call already agreed with us and they were not asking questions to really analyze our campaigns. They already agreed and they were ready to write a fluff propaganda piece pushing our policy initiatives forward. So I realized something was very wrong in journalism and that a good reporter, as I was trained to do it in college, because for all the cultural issues at Penn State, the academics were good. Mm -hmm. uh, I learned to examine both sides and to ask difficult questions and to really dig into things. And people weren't doing that. So I, I realized that. And then I also saw the media outright misrepresenting things and people and um, issues and, and leading people really astray with how they were representing certain issues. So media bias became central and forefront in my mind. And I really wanted to educate Americans about media bias, help them to see through it um, and to actually decide for themselves what they think instead of being manipulated. So when I found All Sides, we were just a really fledgling company back then. Um, and I've been there, yeah, since 2018 and really helped it to grow and grow its profile because I really believe in what All Sides is doing, which is at the very least saying, hey, there's another perspective out there outside of your bubble. Maybe there's information or ideas you haven't heard and maybe they're worth considering. Maybe they're not worth considering, <laughs> um, but like at least give it that fair trial. And so we provide tools and we rate the bias of media outlets on a left to right scale. And then we use those ratings to provide a balanced news feed. So you can get news from the left, center and right on our homepage and on our app and really make sure that you're getting a broad view. And then by reading across the political spectrum, you can start to see how the same story is covered differently by different sides or by people who have different perspectives. And you can compare the coverage and say, you know, well, what do I think? Because this side says this and this side says that and really make an informed opinion. And I think one of the big problems um, in my life was that I wasn't exposed to different ideas for so long that I was just listening to the same voices over and over again. And then eventually it harmed me. And like, even back when I was doing the polyamory thing, it was like, I wish somebody, it, it took that one person giving me a different perspective for me to go, huh, maybe I should consider that. Right. So it's really important to get a broad view just for, for your personal life, but also in the realm of politics. And most of what we cover is political news, so um, I've really enjoyed working at All Sides. I really believe in what we do. And like I said, we've recently been helping journalists by providing media bias audits for journalists that don't want to be biased, want to provide good, like traditional uh, journalism that uh, holds itself to standards of balance. We've been helping them to do that and consulting with them. Um, and then we do a lot of other things as well. Uh, that's the part that I work on. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And I, I think it's a, a great organization. What what are some tips you can give give the audience to know that they're being that the, that what they're consuming is uh, biased one way or another? Is there certain indicators either on the right or the left that you can say they can look at and say, well, they're they're probably slanting it for to communicate what they want versus uh, the the truth. Yeah. So I wrote a guide on our website. It's a guide to sixteen types of media bias, and it breaks down 
all the different ways I've identified that media bias manifests. Maybe not all of the different ways, um, but the main ones, obvious ones. Well, actually, not all of them are obvious, and you kind of have to get wise to them. Uh, so it breaks down, you know, slant, sensationalism, um, subjective qualifying adjectives, word choice, all these different ways that you can see bias in news media. So that's a really good guide. I would recommend people read a really obvious way that we see bias in the media is through word choice. Like someone on the left would refer to abortion as reproductive rights. Um, someone on the right would refer to it as abortion. So um, looking at language, you know, is it illegal aliens or are they asylum seeking migrants, right? The language that we use um, and one I've seen very recently is, is it gender, gender affirming care or is it like uh, a, a medical treatment, right? Like yeah. uh, the words that are used, the phrases that are used to describe an issue can really uh, tilt your view and either make you feel favorable towards the thing or um, maybe reveal things about it that make you question it, right? So getting wise to different word choices that are used can be a really quick and easy way to start to see bias. So we, we've uh, heard about like the fact checkers, but you know, who funds the fact checkers, you know, Oh, this is fake news or this is real, but who's, who's like paying it? Where's the money coming from and what influences are causing these people to say this? And so my same question would be to you for media bias. Like, how are you guys funded? Like you yourself personally, you know, sitting here for an hour, it's obvious you have a conservative uh, right leaning uh, uh, bent in terms of what you think is, uh, your worldview, you know, for obvious reasons that you've laid out. And, uh, so how do we know like your work or the institution, like who funds it? Where, where, where does the money come from? Is there an agenda? Is it, I mean, how do you be like, nobody's totally neutral. So how do we know like that, that stuff that you're saying is fair and balanced and, uh, reasonable, or is there a bend is it, is it, you know, skewed as well? Well, we've taken measures that I think are really brilliant to ensure that we're balanced and uh, producing a fair product. So our team is transparently people across the political spectrum. So if you like go to our team page on our about section of our website, we have transparently listed the bias ratings of everyone that works for us. So I'm on, on in our system, I'm lean, right? Although sometimes I think that like 50 years ago, I would just be like in the middle or something. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's just that the world has changed so much that I guess now I'm a um, conservative. But um, but yeah, we're openly transparent about the, bi the biases of the people on our team. So we constantly have conversations where like before we publish anything, people on the left, center and right look at it. So any one person having some sort of partisan agenda, it's really not going to work because they'll hear from somebody on the other side saying, you can't phrase it that way, or you didn't include this information, or this um, angle is important to people on my side. And, and we workshop things to really make sure it's balanced and to make sure that we're not being inflammatory to one side or the other and really giving people a balanced and fair product. And then as far as how we make money, so far it's been through sustaining memberships. So that's just people who appreciate what we're doing, who agree that bias should be transparent, donating to us, um, one-time donations, monthly, annual donations. Uh, we do have some advertisements on our website, although we've kept them minimal, so they're not intrusive. And then we also provide different like technology services to schools and nonprofits. Um, and now we're providing uh, bias services to newsrooms. So um, we do have technology that can like, you can implement on your website to uh, 
transparently and quickly provide multiple perspectives of a news story. Uh, we've worked with schools to provide media literacy content. Um, we have helped civil dialogue organizations to recruit participants from the left, center, and right. So we have a lot of different income streams. Um, and uh, that's worked for us. We understand the dangers of relying on one singular source of income or one um, investor or uh, whatever it may be that might want to slant us towards a certain agenda. So by kind of diversifying that revenue, uh, we've been able to maintain our balance. And if you look at our site users, our audience is almost perfectly split left, center, right. So we attract liberals, we attract conservatives, and we attract independents in almost equal measure. Um, so we think that's a testament to the good work that we're doing. Yeah, that's fantastic because in this uh, polarized culture war that we're all living through the midst of right now, you could just imagine like your private talks with your colleagues, someone on the left is saying, well, hey, I'm reporting this uh, straight down the middle. And you're like, yeah, that's left leaning. Come on. Or they're saying you're 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 saying this is right down the middle, but they're like saying you're you're, you're right leaning. I mean, you guys must have some some healthy debates and discussions uh, amongst your, your colleagues, I, I would bet. Oh, yeah. And sometimes we publish them on the blog. Oh, really? <laughs> because, yeah, because we're like just, you know. Uh, we'll, we'll be disagreeing or there's like an intense discussion about something. And sometimes we'll just be like, all right, we're going to put that on the blog just for transparency. Like, here's the discussion our team had. And then we'll ask our audience, like, what do you think? Uh, so yeah, it, it gets, we get in the nitty gritty. We also get along very well for a team that is um, across the political spectrum. Um, and uh, we, you know, while we do get into those types of debates and discussions, um, we do end up, I think, uh, operating smoothly day to day. It's really pretty miraculous, um, a thing that we've done. We're a pretty small team. Um, it's an intimate group um, and we all you know, respect one another and um, we respectfully disagree when we disagree. And a big part of what All Sides advocates for is civil conversation. So um, ensuring that when you do disagree with someone, you're you know, uh, communicating in a way that's not like overly hostile or whatever it may be. Cause I mean, at the end of the day, like if you really do want to change hearts and minds or you want people to see your perspective um, you have to have compassion for where they're coming from. You have to mm -hmm. understand where they're coming from. And our whole message is that like, if you don't, if you can't make an argument for the other side, you don't really know the issue. So you really do need to understand the other side um, either to strengthen your own position or maybe the other side has some good points. Um, maybe you'd change your position, right? Uh, but we just want to make sure people aren't in, in one-sided bubbles because we think that's really harmful and it can actually lead you to make a caricature of the other side and say they're just evil and bigoted and terrible, right? When you're just not understanding their thinking. Well, well Julie, you've been a, a fantastic guest. I've, I've really enjoyed this uh, conversation and thank you for your vulnerability and uh, you know, as, as I shared with you that on our show, we, we really want to help people that are drawn to this, uh, some of these crazy ideologies and it's not even just the crazy ideology. Okay. It's not even just like, you know, and I shouldn't even say that because that's inflammatory. So please forgive me. I shouldn't have chosen those words, but it's not even an ideology that's wrong or anti-God. It's the praxis of how people implement this. It is, uh, that we find to be so destructive in our culture, amongst friends, uh, in our institutions and families. And uh, it's the implementation, the praxis of, okay, I believe this thing and, and this is how I'm going to act it out. I'm going to tear, tear it all down, burn it all down. And so I would like you, if you, you know, to, to summarize maybe in the last several minutes, 
uh, what message you would give to somebody who's considering uh, going into the path that you were, you lived a decade in and the darkness of that and how to avoid it. Or if you're in it, like, well, what can you do? What would you sh say to them to maybe help them see things from a, from a, from a more nuanced or a more broad uh, perspective? Well, it's hard because I think a lot of people don't consciously enter into this path uh, and they're being influenced and uh, not really getting a top level view of what it means. But I guess a couple of things I would say is one, uh, be open to different perspectives, be open to people who think differently than you, um, hear them out, maybe even seek out those perspectives and carefully and honestly consider them and be willing to admit when you're wrong and forgive yourself. Uh, it's not easy for us to admit that we've been on the wrong path uh, or to change course. Um, have faith that things will get better and forgive yourself if you have made a mistake, um, if you have found yourself immersed in um, a culture or a practice or a behavior that is ultimately bad for you. There's no shame in changing course and you can do it. And, uh, it'll be good for you. Um, so yeah, just being open to different perspectives, having faith, being brave and being willing to admit when you're wrong. Oh, that's beautiful. I mean, that's redemption. That's why Jesus came to the earth to, to not only forgive us and pay the price for our sins, but to transform us. And we're, we're never too far down the road. We can always repent and we can always come back and open our hearts up to God and have our lives healed and transformed and our, our worldviews renewed. And, uh, and live a joyful and abundant life like you're doing right now. So uh, I'm going to leave, we're going to leave in the show notes uh, how to get a hold of you. And I just want to thank you so much for being so vulnerable and may God bless you and your sister and your life's work. And uh, may you continue to have wisdom and that what you put your hand to do would, would prosper. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. It was great to be able to tell my story and I think you're doing a great thing with your podcast. So thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. God bless you. God bless.